Welcome to the Influencer Collective Show. This is our third roundtable. Um, I'm your host, Jen Sherman, and we have uh, a, a bunch of friendly faces here today, one of which is uh, Elizabeth. And we're going to be talking about a range of topics when it comes to higher education, um, the new normal, um, and digital transformation. So welcome, everyone. How are you all doing today? Great. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for being here. And we also will have our lovely Elizabeth Shea, who will be um, facilitating this conversation among colleagues and friends. And um, if you want to start, Elizabeth, by introducing yourself, and then we can uh, go to Wayne, Jonathan, and then Javier. Perfect. Thank you, Jen. And I really appreciate you pulling this panel together. I think there are a lot of interesting things happening in higher education. So I imagine we'll have a very lively conversation today. So um, I'm the EVP for REQ, which is a, a full service uh, digital agency and PR firm. And I am really excited to have a bunch of my friends around the table having this conversation with us today. So I'm going to be facilitating. I really am impassioned and, and very passionate about this topic. So looking forward to the conversation. So Wayne. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Wayne Bovier. I am the CEO and co-founder of a company called Hired Digital. Um, and we focus on helping higher education institutions around the globe digitally transform. Uh, and we do this through a unique and innovative blend of consulting, software, and analytics as a way to kind of speed up the time to advice and ultimately lower the cost of change for, uh, for institutions of every size. And Jonathan, how about you introduce yourself? Oh, well, I'm happy to do so. I'm glad to be here. I'm uh, Jonathan Aberman. I'm currently the Dean of the School of Business Ideation, Leadership and Technology at Marymount University. And I've been in this region since uh, before time began. Uh, as a venture investor, I'm with Amplifier Ventures. I've been involved in technology uh, in our region since uh, the late 90s. And um, it's been very interesting coming into an academic setting as I did over the last 18 months and applying a lot of what I've learned over the years being an internet and technology investor now in education. And as I'm sure we're going to talk about, there's an awful lot going on right now. It's a great time to be in the industry. Yes. And Javier, love to in let's introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I, uh, I was uh, president of the University of Maryland Global Campus for the last eight and a half years, just a step down. And I am now advising the University System of Maryland on topics like the topics we are going to be talking about. Uh, just uh, so everybody know, uh, UMGC is about 90,000 students, mostly online. We were among the first institutions to go online. And when COVID hit, we went uh, fully remote. Our buildings uh, are, are closed. Uh, happening in Maryland, Hagered. Before Jonathan for 45 years, so it, it was a long time ago. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, what a perfect segue into the conversation about the impact of COVID-19. And I know that uh, Wayne has some very interesting perspectives on this, uh, just given what you've seen with your client base. Um, do you want to kick us off on that topic, Wayne? Just tell us what you think you're. What, what are you seeing in the marketplace today with higher education? Well, as you can imagine, right? I mean, especially for the, any of those of us that are parents, um, we're struggling with, you know, uh, education has moved from an in-person 
experience uh, literally overnight to uh, to remote. And so um, this has caused a global impact for every higher education institution, whether it's a two-year community college, a four-year graduate school, um, you know, four-year private, everybody is dealing um, with this reality. And at a minimum, everybody is pretty much uh, doing a hybrid uh, course, if not fully online. And hybrid means some of the class is done uh, distant from a distance, and then some of that is augmented in, in, in person. And so um, it has certainly caused a lot of kind of uh, economic uh, hardships and impact uh, and, uh, and budgeting, as Javier probably uh, really well knows. Um, and, you know, it, it has caused a, 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 an emergency uh, within, within the industry, and it has uh, a trickle-down effect for all aspects of those that are servicing the industry, those that are, you know, parents like myself that have uh, college-age kids ready to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been quite a whirlwind, um, and uh, it's, been, it's been pretty interesting how a lot of these institutions have tried to, uh, to tackle that. Have you seen an acceleration with any of your clients from that standpoint? Yeah, what's interesting, you know, it, you kind of bucket it into two different uh, buckets, really. Um, you know, those, and I just had a conversation yesterday, um, and full disclosure, UMGC is a client of Higher Digital's. Um, so is uh, Arizona State University. And so I've had some recent conversations, and what is becoming clear is that institutions uh, fall into one of two camps in, in the COVID era. One, either they're saying, oh, here's our, we had a you know, strategic plan that was you know, moving to the digital transformation over the next five years. They're accelerating that. They're now pulling it into a place where uh, instead of doing it in five years, they're now trying to do it in one to two years. So, so places like Southern New Hampshire uh, and ASU in particular are starting to accelerate those plans. A lot of other institutions are just kind of keeping their head down, um, tr- treating this like a temporary emergency versus a new normal. Um, and as a result, you know, they're in a little chaotic situation. Um, and but the reality is that all of those institutions that are in that mode are going to have to pick their head up and they're going to have to deal with this digital transformation head on. Because like the t- title of this podcast, you know, the new normal in education, it is going to be a new normal where technology will be much more strategic for every institution uh, out there. Jonathan, any comments on that? What are you saying? Well, I think that what the number of things I would say, the first one is there is no doubt that technology broadly has, uh, as it's gotten under the tent, particularly the internet has basically crushed one industry after another by disintermediating a lot of people and a lot of structures that, you know, largely stood between the ultimate customer and the service was being offered. And what's happening with education and COVID's accelerated it is it's really raised a question about what is education about vis-a-vis what is the the bundle of other experiences that universities have used to compete. You know, like, oh, I have the most amazing dorms our food's wonderful, our sports teams always make it to the Final Four, vis-a-vis education. And I think that what you're seeing now is the same way that the internet democratized, for good or bad, uh, media, here we are, uh, it's now doing the same thing with education. And it would have been happening 
even without COVID. I mean, we're really lucky to have Javier here on, on this call because the reality is, is that what he and his team did at UMGC was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, they're ahead of the curve. What's mm-hmm. happening with the pandemic is, in a lot of ways, it's forcing institutions to do things that they didn't want to do because a lot of people, the same way ever the industry is blown up on the internet, a lot of people say, well, I, I'm really valuable doing what I'm doing. I don't want to change. I, I'm a great lecturer. I, I, I got a million reasons why I don't want to have my cheese moved. And the pandemic comes and all of a sudden universities are looking at, oh, I need to be online. I mean, I have a friend who's on board of trustees of a liberal arts university up in uh, the Northeast. They did not have a single class <laughs> online last fall, last, last spring, not one. And they had to take an entire university and put it online. And they finally threw up their hands and said, you know what? We can't do it. We're closed until next January. So, you know, you got online, but here's the thing. It's not just online. You know, a lot of the changes that I made at Marymount, I know well, I'm a dean. Deans don't make changes. Deans are those tenured faculty and say, please, would you like to do this with me? So let's be clear. This is not me being a VC. I mean, this is anyway. What the faculty and I realized was that the pandemic was affecting adult learners in new in, in ways. A lot of people are out of work. Uh, there are all these trends around badging and certification as a way to demonstrate skill attainment. So um, Marymount, yes, we went online. We're already online. We hired an OPM. We did all the things that you should do. But we also changed our degree pathways and created stackable certificates and lots of ways for adult learners and transfers to uh, get into our, our school, our, our, our university. So even in the middle of pandemic, you know, we're up 20 percent on the graduate side and 23 percent on the freshman intake. And that's where we're doing hybrid, some in, class, not out. So I think the key here is that what we're seeing absolutely 100% is many universities are going to go out of business over the next five to 10 years because they have antiquated systems. They haven't done the technology things necessary, but fundamentally, they're not going to be able to adapt to the, the, the um, greater connection that students now expect to have with education. Mm-hmm. rather than dormitories. You, you follow me? I'm, Javier, you're yeah. not only crazy. No. No, I, you know, with you, I'm talking to the choir. I mean, you, as I said, and Wayne, too, you, you're, at the, you're at the forefront of this. I, I just turned up in the middle of a pandemic and had to survive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would love to hear, though, Javier, how, what, to what yeah. you contribute. Yeah, your, yeah. I, whenever we talk about uh, the new normal, I like to say that the new normal is not here yet. The new normal will be here after spring 21. Mm-hmm. This, this is we are not over. This is next spring. Uh, I believe most institutions will be where they are today, yes. trying to see how we do it. Same thing with K to 12. So, what are the trends, the things that are happening that I believe will influence a new normal? Technology. Uh, mm-hmm. Faculty who didn't like it have been forced to do either online or Zoom. Period. Students have been forced to go online or through Zoom or whatever. That changes the perspective that everybody had before. Um, I believe some institutions, I totally agree with Jonathan, uh, a number of institutions will not survive. Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, it's just, uh, it may be unfortunate, but that's what happens when there, were, there are disruptions in the, in the marketplace, as we are seeing now. The unbundling. I think now there is a realization 
that when you pay $30,000 for tuition, if you're lucky to only pay $30,000 plus room and board, you are paying for much more than learning. Uh, the branch, the dorms, etc. How that will influence students and their parents, uh, I don't know how it will happen, but I think it will be a factor uh, moving forward. Uh, something that concerns me is affordability. Mm. We all know that COVID has hit communities of color and communities of uh, lower economic uh, means much harder. Uh, we already some community colleges that are declining enrollments this fall. Uh, I think that will be a, an issue uh, that Hagedet has to face. But Hagedet has to face that when their tuition, when they are facing huge gaps in revenues uh, in the system of Maryland, uh, the gap is, I think it's a half a billion dollars, mostly because of revenues that didn't come in, but yet the bond to pay the buildings that are not being used have to be paid. Um, so uh, it will be a new world. Uh, the, the, the constraints, the new perspective of what is it really that we pay for with the technology, et cetera, uh, it will be a sifting between those who can uh, adapt and those who cannot. It's too late. Uh, Jonathan made a point, I think it was Jonathan. If you don't have the basic technological infrastructure today, I don't know how you can do this. I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you're, it's too late for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Elizabeth, I think that um, uh, really the point is a very apt one is that what we're dealing with right now is we have conflated a short term and a long term. And people love to prognosticate because let's face it, you get that's where all the fun is. You know, so the phrase new normal, first of all, I think is nonsensical because it, it's there's no such thing as normal. There's steady state. Right, which exists for some period of time. Was it normal? Abnormal? It's a steady state. We, in fact, have two different environments that we, as business people, we as educators, have to deal with. There is the pandemic, which is going to unfold, uh, I think, for the next year uh, before we see anything past it. We're going to need a vaccine. It's going to be widely available. That is not going to occur much before the summer, if not the fall, number one. Number two, uh, without question, the fiscal position of the United States and its willingness to invest money uh, in, in fiscal spending mm -hmm. is going to dramatically affect whether or not our students can afford to go to university over the next year. Because casual laborers, host, you know, where a lot of them work to be able to afford to go to school, is not going to exist. Restaurants, hotels, Uber doesn't exist, won't exist. So we have a, a recession on our hands with a lot of our students, meaning if we have students that are not really wealthy, there's an enormous affordability. But then once that's done, then the question is going to become, well, where and how are people going to behave? So I have a couple of hypotheses to share. The first one is, I think that now that students have learned and teachers have learned that they can be effective online, it's not, the genie's not going to go back to the bottle, right? Mm -hmm. Having said that, there is clearly still going to be a desire on the part of people to socialize in person. And there's gonna be a value add for certain types of education institutions to bring students together for the collegiate experience. So the reason why I think universities will fail is they won't understand where they are in the pecking order. They won't say, well, I have the kind of university, the kind of physical plant, the kind of 
employee relationships that I can charge somebody $50,000, $60,000 to show up and spend four years singing in an Ivy League choir, mm-hmm. right? And other universities, their real value is just get me educated at an affordable price so I can be employed. You're, you you got to figure out where you are on the map. And a lot of people are going to fool themselves, end up with the wrong cost structure and the wrong um, uh, technology stack, and that's why they'll go out of business. You, you, it's just going to be not seeing yeah. themselves clearly. So, so Wayne, maybe you can comment on that because I know that you take a really hard look at the things that are not necessarily in the tech stack, but you know, issues like culture and adaptability to change. Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, yeah, uh, you uh, you read my mind, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, you know, so I think no, I, I think you know, Jonathan and Javier raised some really really good points. You know, but I do think where where I'll add a little bit of nuance to it is I think most institutions, certainly in the United States, um, and most of the global areas that we operate in, um, they have they have the technical capability. In fact, I've been consulting on a couple smaller institutions that um, their immediate reaction is we want to go and hire an OPM. And it's OPM is an online program management company. And it's a company, there's a handful of these companies that are out there that provide services for institutions that need help marketing their online programs, managing their online programs, and so on and so forth. And a lot of times these contracts tend to be fairly onerous for these institutions. Um, and, but when you look at the technology stack, they have all the capabilities they need, right? I think there's a fundamental flaw in higher education that I, that we've certainly been talking quite a lot about. And that is, you know, for those institutions, um, that, that, uh, are going to survive, that want to survive this, uh, over the next five to 10 years, they have to make technology much more strategic and central to everything that they do. And most of these institutions are seeing technology, at least to date, you know, the IT, the information technology department, the IT department as kind of a cost center. Hey, I got a problem, go fix it, right? Or my email's not working, go fix it, right? Um, That translates into a lot of times systems. Systems, how they uh, get purchased, typically by a lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of times by the department head, the dean. Sorry, Jonathan, um, and and ultimately thrown over the wall to IT to, to manage, right? And so you know that is not strategic. That is you know how does that techno- technology in, impact this experience, right? How does students get through it? How do faculty engage with it? I mean, we talk a lot about students, but faculty are just as challenged interacting with the technology and the disjointedness of all these systems, and so. Um, so fundamentally, I believe that the institutions, most institutions have the technology footprint they need to grow uh, their institution with online students, but they don't have uh, the, the kind of experience and the expertise on staff and the organizational structure to empower decision making to move much more strategic with those purchases uh, going forward. If I may add a point, because I, I, I totally agree, I, I think institutions, uh, piggybacking on that, will be facing uh, a, a sort of a fork in the road. Uh, okay, technology is here. Everybody has accepted that on most people. But what will that mean for the type of students you want to attract? If you want to attract, which is very valid, the 18-year-old that once the collegiate experience, technology means one thing. 
what I see now is some institutions, because of the money issues, oh my gosh, we want to be like UMGC or Southern New Hampshire. Let's get on with the working adults and uh, grow it. Regardless if that is feasible or not, that is a totally different approach of how you use the technology. So mm -hmm. I think institutions will have to first uh, decide, do you continue to serve the students you have served historically, or do you expand? And, and you have to be very careful because if you start doing too many things, we know what happens, uh, nothing gets done right. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I, I, I also think that uh, what happens for people who aren't actually involved in the technology industry, uh, they confuse technology for uh, a business model. In other words, it's like, <laughs> right? Uh, well said, well said. I, I, I will go online and I will invest technology, go online. I'll make everybody go on Canvas. And I'm you know, not understanding that what they really have to ask themselves is what's their value proposition? Why does the university exist? What kind of students does it, it want to have? And, and technology is the enablement for the outcome. So for example, if you wanna have a high touch boutique liberal arts university, you probably don't wanna invest a lot of time in, a, in an at scale online program, but you should have best of breed student data and you should have best of breed uh, information management to give the students a really strong understanding of how they're doing against their degree path the counselors have visibility and be able to use like artificial intelligence tools to see where you have at-risk students. So you can give that concierge high touch experience, which is a completely different use of technology than saying, I want to make sure that adult learners that are serving in Afghanistan have access to great instruction, which is, as you know, is, is a very, is a great business and one that you're succeeding in. So, that's the key. Wayne, I'm sure you look, this is your life all day long, right? <laughs> I need technology. You're like, why do you need this technology? You're not, you know, you, know well, you don't need a Porsche. You need to get to work. Here's a nice bicycle. You know, I mean, well, there's, there's also a societal impact to this, right? Because um, there's a professor out of MIT, Sanjay Sharma, that was a, gave a keynote at the ASU GSTV conference a couple couple of weeks ago. And it was really fascinating because he, he one of his slides and points that he was making is about industry disruption that COVID has introduced. And you think about, you know, you know, uh, all the industries like the travel industry, a lot of the services industry, you know, the hotel industry have been really disrupted. And there's a big question mark, what's going to happen to those employees? Right. And then on the, on the other side of the equation is think about the, the um, companies and industries that have done really well. Think about Zoom, video conferencing, Google, right, all the technology based companies. And so you have a you know, you have uh, employees that essentially need to be retrained. And what technology it does and Jonathan, I think you said it is exactly right. It's an enabler. Right. And it needs you need to know what it's going to enable. But when you think about what has technology done to retail and all these types of things, it's ultimately lowered the cost, right? It's brought, it's lowered the cost and, and increased the services. And that is fundamentally the change that education is going through um, right now uh, that, you know, the cost over the last 20 years, the cost of living increase compared to the cost of increase of education is pretty significantly different. I think it's like 100, 150% over the last, you know, higher ed has increased over the cost of living. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not sustainable. And it's, 
it's not affordable for those that have, you know, 15 hour uh, type of jobs, $20 an hour type of jobs. But I think it's important to note that technology does create margin improvement, but universities don't necessarily have to pass that margin improvement on to the students. It, it really, it, every business has to make a decision about what customer wants to serve and what the overall value proposition is. And again, I think the, the nice thing about technology is it allows institutions like uh, Maryland Global Campus and, and others to educate at scale people who couldn't otherwise be educated. And that is making a huge difference to our, to our society. But technology, again, it's, it's not determinative how the, it's just, it's just, it's an enablement is, is really the, the key. So you, know, you mentioned the, the, the impact of COVID across the board. Uh, I think we all uh, have uh, seen or have experienced telemedicine. Mm -hmm. Telemedicine used to be for small towns, if you were in a small town in Western Massachusetts or whatever. But now everybody is doing telemedicine from home. I don't think we are going to go back that. I think I have a cold. I'm going to go. For, we are not even going any longer to the primary physician, but to the care center in the corner. But now I don't even have to go there. I simply would do it through teleworking, telemedicine. That will lower the cost to the consumer sure. because it's 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 a the, the overhead will be much lower. How that happens in higher education, I I, I am somewhat skeptical <laughs> that higher ed can adapt to truly uh, lowering its cost structure. Uh, that now that they get used to uh, through technology, perhaps uh, the savings, etc. Um, but Jonathan, it's will those savings go to the students? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think in some cases it will, in other cases it won't. But I think the universities that are going to win are going to be the ones that clearly understand their value proposition and use <laughs> technology to improve their margins, whatever their business model is. So, you know, what I'm hearing is it's not necessarily about the technology stack, but what's the strategy that you're going to take as a university and as an institution? Correct. So um, I, I'd like to segue into the topic of mergers and acquisitions because you've talked about some universities and institutions potentially not making it. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you seeing in the industry as far as consolidation and or, you know, what, what are the options for universities that might not be able to adapt to this, to this change? to this new, I'm not gonna say new normal anymore, but do <laughs> so uh, you wanna answer that one? Yeah, so I'll jump in just real quickly on this. You know, I think it, it's, it's, you know, the outcome of this is TBD, right? Um, you know, so Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania, the Pashi, the Pennsylvania state system um, announced a couple of months ago, and this is the middle of COVID, I think they were considering this before COVID hit, but certainly accelerated decisions uh, to consolidate. Um, mm -hmm. Some of their, uh, I wanna say they have 15 campuses uh, and their own brands. Um, they're in the, in, the, in the middle of consolidating uh, uh, in the districts or something. And so, you know, those that I've been working with uh, in those institutions that are going through that, I've essentially put all of our conversations on hold because they don't, it's not clear to them how this is going to shake out, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to be the president of these newly combined 
entities? Uh, or is there a chancellor that's going to oversee this? Are they going to keep presidents? Like what's going to happen to the campus? How they, you know, in a lot of cases, these guys um, from a technology point of view um, have really put a, put technology on the back, back burner for the last 10 years. And I think they are now recognizing that was a major mistake. And mm -hmm. so they have a variety of major obstacles that are short term that they have to overcome. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm anticipating that there's a lot of institutions that are at least having these conversations within their system, within their state. Um, and uh, I think it's still relatively unknown how this is all going to going to shake out. Yeah. If I could add in, uh, having been for years uh, an M&A banker and then an M&A lawyer, uh, been really involved in this, and, and then I was managing partner of, of law firms during the, the beginning of the consolidation of law industry, and actually at the time helped put in place what was in the largest law firm merger in history. And there's some significant differences between the educational marketplace and other industries that would would move against it being the logical outcome of merger and acquisitions. Every other industry, mergers largely are a way to rationalize operations, shed people you want to shed, consolidate product lines, and so forth. The university marketplace is highly fragmented. We have a lot of small private universities that all have alumni networks, all have tenured professors, all have real estate portfolios and geographic reach. They're going to look at this situation very differently from what Wayne just described, which is an integrated statewide public system. And then there, there are hybrids in between. So there are a couple of predictions that, that uh, I, I'm going to make. The first one is you're going to see institutions like a Sweetbriar, for example, that faces death, but then the, the alumni actually ride to its defense and they redefine themselves. And now they're marketing themselves as a safe place to go to university. And, and may survive. So some of these institutions may actually find that the alumni figure out how to keep them afloat. Uh, others are going to find that their reason for existing just, what's gonna happen eventually is they will stop attracting enough students to be able to make their, their overheads work. They will chase discounts more and more to try to attract students and eventually fall into a death spiral where they can't afford their overhead on their debt service on their buildings. And so they will then say, we want to merge. Other universities will say, well, what am I acquiring? I'm acquiring a bunch of professors in another marketplace. That doesn't help me. You know, so I don't think you're going to see a roll up of universities like you do. There'll be exceptions like when University of Phoenix bought Thunderbird, for example. You know, there are exceptions to the rule. I'm sure Javier's got many people calling him and saying, hey, want to buy us? They'll be law firm, law firm. They'll be university mergers, but they're not going to be at the level that, that you would expect in other industries to consolidate is my my expectation. Hey, Jonathan, <laughs> ASU actually ended up buying Thunderbird. ASU, uh, sorry. Tried. <laughs> ASU came in and, and got, got, got. As you can tell, I mean, I'm a, I'm a failed VC as dean. <laughs> and now it's memorialized, so I'm never going to get another job ever. Thank you. I, Thanks, Wayne. I, you go. I agree. I think that when we talk about uh, uh, mergers, acquisitions, and the future, we have to distinguish between sectors. Because if you are a small private college, your alumni may be able to save you. But if that doesn't happen and you don't have an endowment, you are in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you are a public institution, particularly in other research one institutions, the flagships, they will be doing okay. Uh, that's not an issue. But if you are in the 
second tier, what used to be called state colleges, universities. I like to joke that public institutions never die. They just fade or, or merge. Mm-hmm. Pashi, if you are objective about the number of higher education institutions in Pennsylvania, just data driven, you will say there are too many institutions. Well, you know, they are in a part of the state that they offer the best jobs, the only art available, etc. So what I see happening in that sector is what if, I'm not too sure in Pennsylvania, I understand what they want to do. I think they are trying to sort it out, but perhaps go to a model of a shared service centers in which you actually can provide the services so you decrease the cost structure for the, uh, the universities uh, in that sector. Um, I like to think that at some point in the future, higher ed uh, will be forced to crack the nut of, do we really need 3,000 biology 101 courses? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that that different? Uh, or can we have, now that we are getting used to the technology, perhaps the best course in biology XYZ comes from this university, and the other ones can just simply uh, enroll their students in that university. And that again brings the cost down. That will take longer because they are your uh, uh, impacting on tenure faculty. And in many cases, you have uh, union contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the possibilities, the potential for uh, changing the cost structure in public higher ed, the potential is there. Uh, it's just politically, can it be done? I think it will be forced. The change will be forced uh, because of all the budget constraints we mentioned. I think I think you're absolutely right. If I was going to uh, predict, I, I think there are three types of universities that we're going to see survive and flourish in this environment. The first one is going to be, you mentioned the R1s and R2s that will be able to do well because they'll be centers of knowledge and they'll attract <laughs> research dollars and research will be done. The second is universities or university systems operate at scale and take advantage of the efficiency to describe and they can be large public or public system. The third is gonna be high quality boutiques, mm-hmm. you know, like where, where we're trying to get a Marymount, for example, or where mm-hmm. you see uh, other medium sized or small universities where there's a strong value proposition, excellent programs, there's remote learning, there's distance learning, there's a collegiate experience, but ultimately there's a reason for somebody to feel that there's enough unbundled stuff to aggregate to $50,000 a year of value. And some universities can be able to do that and some are not. I'll tell you the university types I'm most concerned about are the private universities that have 10 to 20,000 students, don't do a lot of research and had a geographic footprint that allowed them to get students. I think they're the ones who have the hardest time because as larger universities operate at scale with distance learning, and as the R2s and R1s get stronger, it's going to be harder for these tweeners to modify their business models. And what would they modify it to? I think they're the ones who have the hardest time. So I'm curious if uh, maybe, Wayne, you have some perspective. What are the kinds of things that are, what do you think the leadership of some of these universities should be thinking about? I mean, how do they how do they put themselves into a certain bucket or, you know, what, what are the, what are the things that people can do to try to get themselves in the right place? Yeah. yeah great, great question. To, to change, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the first thing is to, to accept that this is, you know, uh, we've talked about this kind of being, there's going to be a new normal, right? the, this idea of kind of going back to, you know, the status quo prior to COVID on how the industry operated, I think is going to, it, it would be a mistake. Um, I think, you know, presidents in particular um, and boards have a really important um, uh, opportunity in front of them to really start to embrace change. You know, one of the basic lessons I've learned in, in just, you know, business lessons that I've learned is when, you know, when your business is starting to struggle, right, and because you're selling one particular widget, you know, you should look to diversify. And so we've talked about this concept around, you know, badges, certificates, uh, all the way, you know, all the way up to PhDs and unbundling of these degrees, I think totally makes sense. And I think institutions really need to uh, embrace it and try it. Um, I think it, historically as an industry, you know, there's a lot of irony and about what I'm about ready to say is that as a higher education, we're great at teaching. But as an industry, we're terrible at learning, um, and and we don't really learn well and 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 make the appropriate changes organizationally, operationally, and and that's really what's required is to really start to think differently, um, to take risks, uh, and the risk may not work out. You may fail, um, and failure in in higher ed is also a, a stigma that that is unfortunate. Um, you know, for those of us that have been in the kind of Silicon Valley world for a while. It's just nature of the ball game. That is how you learn and how you how you grow. And so, I think I think they need to understand the impact on that. You know, my alma mater, Dickinson College, uh, for undergrad, actually starting to offer up master's degrees, and they've been around since the late 1700s. And this is the first time they've done that. So I applaud you know President Ensign uh, and, and and encourage them to continue to kind of move forward um, and be aggressive on that. But every institution should be considering that because. Again, on the on the on the society of the jo the jobs, right? Those employers and, and getting a job, you know, there's going to be a, a, a the, the the idea that you're going to get a degree, and then 40 years later going to retire is no longer going to happen. That you're going to need constant retraining and evolution, right? Um, and you know, I think higher education has a huge opportunity to play in there, but they need to there needs to be some changes that need to happen. And the challenge, it seems to me, they are, I see in my colleagues uh, in Maryland, uh, if you are in a traditional institution, uh, the last nine months have been all-consuming regarding COVID. Every energy, all everything goes into that. That will continue. Uh, what I see already happening through the leadership of the uh, regions is, okay, we need to do that. But let's start thinking about the future. Because if we all, all we are thinking is how many tests and what is the positivity rate and the benchmarks, et cetera, if we are not thinking about the future, then we cannot meet the challenges. And that's where, at least in matter of my experience, is that that uh, perspective uh, forcing the institutions to think about the future is coming through the Board of Regions. Mm -hmm. I think it comes to the Board of Regents, Board of Trustees. Board of Trustees. Yeah, right. I mean, you're exactly right. The interesting thing and is that uh, what we really are describing right now is that um, universities have to become learning organizations from a standpoint of gathering situational awareness from outside, bringing it in, and figuring out how best to create a, a strategy to value proposition to flourish in that environment. 
And, and what's interesting to me about this is this shows me that every university president now has to be a servant leader. The idea of, of top-down telling people what to do uh, is not going to work. And so every university president job one right now is to get with their tenured faculty and get clear as trust and understanding about the true nature of the threats that are being faced, both for COVID, but also moving forward and get it into a dialogue. And the universities that will survive fundamentally are ones where the faculty and the, tr and the administration have a high level of comfort and trust because there's no way, there's no way to deal with the ambiguity and the outcomes that are facing all of us unless, unless you have that. And, um, and that's fascinating. And I think that may be the biggest difference in how you talk about what's COVID doing. Wayne and I, we've been involved in technology for a while. Javier, you've been involved with it as well from your perspective. What tech companies generally do really, really well, the ones that grow, is they have servant leader and flat management structures where accountability is driven down and authority is delegated upward, which is not the way universities have operated. And the ones that will survive, Elizabeth, are the ones that take the technology, take the world, but at the fundamental core of it, have a servant-driven culture where people roll up their sleeves and get things done and they don't, they're not fighting. The ones that fight are going to go out of business <laughs> because the world will move on and they'll still be fighting. That's really fundamentally where yeah. we are. Yeah. Well, any advice from any of you on how you might be able to break down some of those, those silos, if you will, or try to work hand in hand better? Any best practices? Wayne, anything you want to offer there? Well, so yeah, I have a lot, I have a long laundry <laughs> list of things, but but in general, you know, um, like what advice can you give? You know, yeah, I, I think you know, so so you know, so Javi and I, when we first met, we had a, a, a very uh, similar conversation, which is, you know, you need to be the institution needs to be much more strategic with its technology invest, investments. And today, that is a that's a gap in almost every single institution. And what I mean by that, when you look at other in industries that have gone through digital disruption earlier, um, you typically see a trend where you have senior leadership, and then you have your technology IT department. And a lot of times, they've hired a chief digital officer, chief online officer, somebody to kind of come in and start to bridge the gap. Um, but what is the most challenging part in the industry, we touched on this, is kind of the organizational leadership structure is really siloed within an institution. And so I think you need to start to figure out organizationally how to empower somebody, whether you hire them internally or not, but you got to certainly bring up your, your CIO in, into the president's cabinet. You probably need to... that. CIO tends to be execution oriented. They're really efficient, but you need somebody owning strategy uh, across the institution. So you need somebody that generally understands CRM systems, SIS systems, analytics. It really runs the gamut. And a lot of times these are in, in budgets all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that I would say is probably start to consolidate those uh, line items, those technology budget line items into a single budget under that chief digital officer. Um, because the budget authority is part of the problem uh, in higher ed. And that's why a lot of institutions have a lot of technical debt and a somewhat of a Frankenstein ecosystem, technology ecosystem as a result of that. Mm. Javier, what advice can you give? 
Yeah, I, actually, I, before I, I want to piggyback uh, when uh, Wayne was doing when when Wayne was doing some uh, work for us. Uh, one of the recommendations was to get a chief digital officer, and it's different than the CIO, and and I learned that. Uh, and then you have to make that person. In our case, what we did was uh, we brought somebody in at a senior vice president level, uh, equal with the chief academic officer and the chief financial officer. And all the technology uh, goes through that person. But it's bringing the perspective that is not just the systems. but And it has to fit into what we were talking about before, what you want to be, what is your strategy. That will be the person that then takes that, okay, it means for technology, this is what it means. Um, I, I believe, uh, uh, and I, uh, I really resonated with me, uh, Jonathan, the idea of the uh, servant leadership. Uh, I, uh, the, the, the era of uh, the big men or women, but generally they were men, it's over. It, it, it's just, it, and I don't think it's just higher education. I think it's across the board. Mm -hmm. It's too complicated. The world is too complex. The solutions are um, uh, are not clear at times, and you need everybody to uh, have a stake on it. My biggest fear, uh, and will be my advice to presidents, is take risks and not be afraid to fail. In higher ed, we have a very conservative culture, uh, which has served us well, don't get me wrong. But that idea of a leader, and it goes back to leadership. Everything I say goes back to leadership. It's uh, a, a, a servant leadership style, uh, but, um, but also uh, bringing everybody together, et cetera. So that leadership is, is key, take risks, uh, make sure that you know when you are failing and move on. What is the expression? Uh, fail, fail often, yeah. but fast. <laughs> uh, that is a cultural change that will be uh, difficult. But I think that uh, pressure will be there to go that way. I agree with everything that's been said. And uh, what I would like to layer on top of that, if we're talking to a, a president or somebody in leadership capacity in university, my other observations would be, there is no substitute for vision. The biggest responsibility oh, that a leader has is to elucidate a vision because people need to understand why they're coming to work every day. And that's the job of a leader is to, is to formulate the vision. Number one, number two, uh, all the changes, all the things we're talking about require ultimately an organizational culture that has three different attributes. Uh, there needs to be clear, there needs to be clear authority, clear responsibility, clear accountability. And anybody who has to do something has to have clarity on all three of those things. Institutions die where people have authority but don't have responsibility or people have accountability but don't have responsibility. And the last one is there needs to be authenticity. Just these days, to the point of servant leadership, we are drowning right now in an information, day, uh, information cesspool in, this, in, in the world right now. I mean, there's, we are at a point now where there's alternative facts, which bluntly is complete nonsense. Anybody in academia knows we live our lives building facts based upon other facts, based upon 
discovery. There's no alternative facts. There's reality. Well, people crave that. They know it's important. They want it so desperately. If you have an institution where people understand why they're coming to work and you're humble and you tell them what you need them to do and you're authentic every day, you'll be able to accomplish amazing things because people want to win. Everybody wants to have fun and, and you'll win. But if you're not authentic, if you try to spin people, if you send emails when walking down the hall would be better, if you don't do videos that are approached, if you're not authentic, you're toast. Anybody who, who's university president thinks you can spin your people, they'll smell it a mile away and you're toast and you'll never get anything done. Well said, well said. Yeah. I think we're coming to about the end of our time. Um, anyone have anything else to add? I, I, it's nothing to add, but just to summarize, I thought the last uh, segment uh, was fascinating because we all converged on, at the end of the day, first and foremost, is leadership. Even before technology, it's leadership with everything around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can't outsource digital transformation. No, you cannot. <laughs> you have to own it. Yeah. And you can't outsource leadership. Yep. And, and well, here's the good news. There are, there are a group of people in this country right now who have job security if they do a good job of being leaders. And so at least, at least we know that there are a few thousand people in our society that will be employed six months from now. So we've accomplished something today. <laughs> So I think we're about done, Jen. Anything else we need to add? I think this was great. I mean, this is the first time. It was very lovely to just be able to yeah. sit back during uh, the Influencer Collective show and just let let magic happen and great conversation. So I, I think that we had a very hearty conversation. Um, I really just want to thank all of you for joining. You. Um, I think one of the reasons why we facilitate these roundtables is to have authentic conversations. And, you know, I know we see a lot of the time you have panels and half the panel of the time is just people talking about their background. So I'm really happy that we're able to really dive into the, um, to the meat of what, of what the current situation is right now with higher education and what the future really looks like. So I just want to thank um, everyone for joining today. Elizabeth, fabulous job facilitating. I really took the cake. I didn't even have to chime in any in, in anywhere. Uh, you're natural as, as of course. Um, and just want to thank everyone. And I will include everything of where they can find you, learn more information um, in the show notes. And um, I will catch you all next time. I am your host, Jen Sherman of the Influencer Collective Show. And we will see you on the next roundtable. Did you enjoy the jingle? That song is called Luxury, and it's by me, Kat Janice. Find me on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, wherever you get your tunes to hear my newest single, Luxury. It's a luxury.